Good morning. My name is Angie. I'm going to be reading from 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen. Thank you, Angie. Well, good morning. I think you get better every single time I do that. I really do. Good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Heights. If we have not met, I would love to meet you. Today, we jump into 1 John chapter 2, continuing our series. This was actually supposed to be what we talked about last week, but the power went out. So we are here again this week. You still have to learn about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You did not get out of it that easy. <laughs> I want to begin today with two stories of two men 700 years apart who are yet connected to each other and also informative for us today. First is a man named Giovanni, living in the turn of the 13th century in Italy, a man born in nobility and wealth, who nevertheless, in his 20s, was in a church building and stripped himself naked. Now, before you are thinking, what on earth have I gotten myself into, let me point you to the second story, a far different story. Yesterday was Remembrance Day. Right now, we turn to the story of a man named Diedrich, also a young man who died in Germany mere days before the Nazi camp he was in was liberated by the Allies. Why are those two stories connected? Why do we begin with them today? What well, has to do something, has to do in some way with this idea of renouncing the world. To that end, we turn to chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 John. If you have a Bible or a device, please turn with me to chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 John. It says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. John here talks about the incompatibility of love for the world and love for the Father. And he does so in basically an addendum. This is not John's main point that he's trying to push throughout his letter. He actually just kind of tacks this on, assuming that these three verses will be enough for his readers. They're already going to understand the other building blocks of the incompatibility between the world and God. How is that possible? Well, it's actually what you get to see in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is the one, the Son of God, who came to earth, renounced the world, died on a cross, and in so doing, rescued humanity and all of creation. It's also what you got to see time and time again through heroes of the faith. Return with me to those two stories. Giovanni is a man who later became known as Francis of Assisi. Some of you will know this name, many of you might not, so let me explain it to you. Francis, as I, as I had already mentioned, 
grew up in nobility, grew up in wealth. And what he saw, he had this vision at one point, after pursuing a life of pleasure, he had a vision at one point, seeing a church that was falling apart and had this impression put upon him, how could it be that I should live in prosperity while the house of God crumbles before me? And so he devoted himself to renouncing the world, selling all that he had, By stripping himself of his clothing, he actually renounced his birthright, his line of nobility, and went into the wilderness to seek God. And his story has become impactful for generations over the last 800 years. We get to see another man, Diedrich, full name Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He's a pastor in Germany. In the middle of the Nazi regime, at a time when there were two options— Either as a Christian, you can capitulate to the interests of Hitler and the Nazis in the Third Reich, or you can flee the country. And that was actually an opportunity that was given to him. He was a prestigious scholar. He was given an opportunity to have a position elsewhere in safety, and he chose to stay and speak against Hitler. And it cost him his life. He renounced the world. I could have chosen any number of stories Because what has been programmed into the DNA of the church from the beginning, because this is what our faith resides around, is the fact that God shows up as people renounce the world. Those two things are connected. God shows up as people renounce the world. Now, we could have some questions about this. There's also one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16, where we hear something slightly different, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. So why here does John tell us to not love the world? Well, we're dealing with two different definitions of world. On the one hand, we have this idea of creation itself, of humanity, of everything that God has made and how he made it to be good. Yes, love that. We have a secondary definition of world working here. John uses it. Other New Testament authors are going to use it. Jesus himself at times is going to use it this way. The definition that we are working with here is this. The world is the place where dysfunction gets normalized. In Francis's day, it had become normal to be a wealthy person, to base your identity based on who you are, what you have, and then to also tack on Jesus as an aside. He renounced that normalized dysfunction. In Bonhoeffer's day, it had become normalized to capitulate in either fleeing or in accepting and affirming. It had been normalized to just say, you know what, the Nazi regime really is the most powerful kingdom on earth and there's nothing we can do to stop it. He renounced that normalized dysfunction. Here's why this is important. We live in a day where more and more people are interested in engaging with the transcendent somehow, and we just don't know what to do. So we try and pull from different belief systems, different religions, a little bit of Christianity here, a little bit of Hinduism here, a little bit of Sikhism here. Just pull all around, a little bit of New Age spirituality. What we are told, though, is that the way to find God, to swell up in love for the Father, and later on, verse 17, to live forever, not just about an extension amount of time of life, but the type of life that you can live, to have that quality of life forever, is to renounce the world. 
Today we come into, in, in a room, in a passage that takes this more seriously than perhaps anyone else. And I want to point us to a group of people who probably took these verses more, than, more seriously than anybody else in human history. I've already mentioned Francis, I've already mentioned Bonhoeffer, but I want to point us to a group of women and men called the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. Lived in about the third, fourth century, and they did some things by our day that were very weird. Again, they sold all that they had, they went into like absolute solitude, lived in some cells, took some like serious levels of fasting, would eat like portions of bread once a day for weeks on end. A little bit crazy, not asking you to do that, nor am I asking you to strip yourself naked in a church building. Please do not do that. That is not why we're here. The reason we are telling these stories is because if John's idea here is kind of like you have a gold pan and you're in a river and you're trying to like grab gold nuggets and then sift out the mud, the reason we are talking about these stories is I think we live in a day where we've taken the gold pan and we've settled for the mud. And we've not actually sifted through it and been satisfied with just love for the Father. We're stuck in the mud, and I want to actually kind of shock us a little bit with some stories of people who have taken these passages far more seriously than we would dare imagine. So these desert fathers and mothers lived in a day where after Christianity for 300 years had kind of been an underground movement, persecuted, had now expanded so explosively. They were the dominant belief system in the Roman Empire. So much so that in the year 321, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and declared the entire Roman Empire to be Christian. Crazy turn of events. Nobody could have seen it 300 years earlier, but what happened is all of a sudden, you could now follow Jesus and also seek prestige at the same time. It's no coincidence that this is the exact era where these men and women decided, we need to flee. Many of them were coming from wealthy backgrounds. They fleed their wealth because they did not want to love the world and attempt to love the Father at the same time. They saw these things cannot go together. So we renounce the world. I want to use these women and men as our guides as we continue on through these verses. This brings us to verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John gives us three temptations, things that probably aren't in our common vernacular. I'm not sure the last time you talked with your buddy about the lust of the flesh was. Probably never. But we want to break them down to understand what's actually going on here. So we've given three questions. I don't know if you know this. Our team meets a week and a half in advance to discuss these messages, to work on them together. And we've come up with a few questions to help describe each of these temptations. So the lust of the flesh, the question we've landed on is this. Does it feel good? If we are driven by this question and answering yes to this question as much as possible, we are talking about the category of the lust of the flesh. It is a pleasure-oriented world. It is an instant gratification world. Whether in seeking the approval of others, whether in the platforming of sex and sexuality and pornography, whether in substance abuse, all ranges of things, are we driven by the question, does it feel good? The answer in our day is, of course, yes, and I want to give you a little bit of a shock to show you a radically different way of thinking. It's going to feel weird to you about this Abba Pullman guy, about how he thought about the lust of the flesh. Listen to this quote. How can we acquire the fear of God when our belly is full of cheese and preserved foods? I am lactose intolerant. 
I say amen to that. (laughs) It feels nonsensical. What on earth is this guy on about? Here's what he's saying. I mean, in that day, you have to think about the economic types of things. To have cheese and preserved foods would be like a level of economic luxury that few could afford. What he's saying is, how on earth are we supposed to grow in our fear of God, or in John's language here, our love for the Father, when we satiate ourselves every single day, not just with what we need, but with far more than any human could ever need? He realized that this is no way to grow in the love of God. I think it's telling for us in our day then when we are driven by pleasure, by the pursuit of instant happiness in every single moment, so much so that we will drive ourselves to entertainment we don't even like just for the hopes of trying to find some type of pleasure. What's your screen time? What's your phone telling you? How much time are you spending searching for entertainment? And then think about how many times you actually enjoyed what you were doing. We hunt for pleasure and happiness, and we also know that we do not grow in love for God as we do so. This is the lust of the flesh. How about this? The lust of the eyes. Well, the question we've come to for this one is, do I need more than I have? Do I lack contentment with my current state? Am I driven for more? Here's another crazy quote from a desert mother. Emma Sarah says this, It was said concerning her that for 60 years she lived beside a river and never lifted her eyes to look at it. Emma Sarah does not sound like a very fun human being. I just chose her. There's a few stories, actually, of these women and men doing something like this, of a man going into the village to join a church gathering, but not daring to look up and see the beautiful frescoes and the ceiling and the mosaics because he just wanted to come and he wanted to pray. This is what Emma Sarah was after. She had devoted her life to prayer. She did not want to be distracted by anything. She wanted to be content with the life God had given her. And she knew that her eyes were a direct pathway to her heart, that what she looked at would form her. Has this dysfunction been normalized in our day to try and see if we can, through our eyes, pull people away from the things that draw us into life and the love of God? Well, we have something today that is literally called an attention economy that is based purely on the idea that if you can grab people's attention and hold on to their attention, you will be a profitable company, and it is proving true. Whether you go through billboards, whether you go through phone advertisements, whether you go through commercials, it does not matter. The idea is how much can we hold people's attention? Today, it is not just a temptation, but an assumption that we would give our attention to things of insignificance. There's a verse that comes to mind from Proverbs. We don't have it on the screen. I apologize, Vicky. It just came up in my devotions. I don't know where Vicky is. Oh, did I just find her? No. I apologize, Vicky, wherever you are. It's not on the screen. I didn't give it to you. But it's just such a good quote. It's kind of punk rock. It's from the Proverbs. It's Proverbs 2720, and it says this. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. Just something about that that just like 
punches, you know? It just feels good. And also bad at the same time because it is that recognition. We are driven by what we see. Then you move to the pride of life. The question that we landed on here was, am I self-sufficient? We tried a few different options. Am I self-reliant? Do I seek self-mastery? Do I define myself by my own independence and my ability to create my own sense of security? Whatever question you land on, it's based on the idea that we would define ourselves based on what we have and who we are. I don't turn to a specific quote. I just turn to how crazy these stories of Francis and Diedrich and the desert fathers and mothers seem to us, that they would literally renounce everything, all comfort, all pleasure, all sense of security for the sake of seeking God. In contrast to that in our day, I just point to who are the new heroes of our day? It's the people who are successful. The people with big platforms whether it's successful in the world of business, whether it's successful in the world of possessions and wealth, whether they are successful in the number of followers they have, successful in the amount of influence they create. This is also, just to be clear, something that like clearly happens within the church as well. The people that I respect most in ministry are those who tend to have like a really strong following. I don't look to the people who are marked by obscurity who are marked by a very different definition of success. Billy Graham, a man who proclaimed the good news of Jesus to millions of people around the world, during his lifetime probably the most well-known Protestant in the world, just passed away a few years ago. He was one time asked, probably at like the height of his influence, he was one time asked, who is the best Christian in the world? On the one hand, it's a very silly question. But I think his answer touches on something just right. He said, we would not know who they are. They're probably living in some remote village in a place like Africa, in absolute obscurity, content to simply live faithfully with what God has given them, loving their neighbor, giving generously, and seeking God. But in our day, that type of life, that type of normalized seeking of God by renouncing the world is not something we see. Instead, we see a different dysfunction normalized. That is the type of thing that comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, these three things often work in conjunction. What happens is our obsession with pleasure gets triggered by what we see so that we fixate on what we have and who we are. This can happen in the world of work. We like the feeling of getting a promotion, of getting an encouraging report from our boss, of seeing the bottom line increase. We like that feeling. We start to see other people who have been successful in the workplace, maybe through career advancement, maybe through big business deals, maybe through the possessions they can bring at home, and we start to say, you know what? The best way to define my life and success is based on how successful I am in the workplace. They work in conjunction. You can go through a whole host of things. We like the feeling of being the life of the party and the way that alcohol contributes to that. We see people who are themselves the life of the party, who are invited to all these gatherings. And so we say, yes, I want to be part of that as well. And we begin to define ourselves based on, am I the life of the party? In the area of body image, we like the feeling of people commenting on how we look. It feels good. 
We see images of people who look better than us, whether they are fashion forward, whether they are athletic, whatever it is, and we begin to define ourselves based on our appearance. You get to see here, actually, that the pride of life doesn't always look like confidence. It can also look like insecurity. If you begin to define your life based on what people view of your appearance, that can be a deep, deep place of insecurity. But it's also something that's been normalized in our day. This is a function of the world. This is how the enemy works. He normalizes these dysfunctions. It's how he's always worked. In fact, it's what he did and attempted to tempt Jesus with in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you have a Bible or advice, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And just look for the ways that these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come out. Verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is there anything wrong with eating bread? Of course not. But Jesus, in his hunger, was tempted by the devil, the power of darkness, in order to, say, seek your own pleasure rather than your commitment to God. Jesus had to say no to this temptation. Jump down with me to verse 8. See the lust of the eyes. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Temptation of the devil was to take Jesus to a mountain and allow Jesus to set his eyes on all that could be his. And Jesus had to say no. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, you are the Son of God. Let the world see it. Show them your power. Jump off. Let the angels catch you. Let the world see in this moment. Let this moment and your power be the definition of who you are and what you have. Jesus once again had to say no. This is the way the enemy works. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's no wonder then that you have people who want to take it very seriously to renounce the world. I think I said something along the lines earlier that nobody has taken these verses more seriously than the desert fathers and the desert mothers. If you wanted to see the opposite, though, if you wanted to find a moment that rejected these verses as much as possible, not to say, if you had to, like, the incompatibility between the love of the world and love of the Father, that chose the love of the world side, you would find something like the 21st century Western world. A world that elevates pleasure and instant gratification above all things. 
a world that seeks to hold your attention and convince you to consume, consume, consume. You need more than you have wherever you go. And a world that attempts to force you to define yourself based on what you've accomplished or what you have. That's our day. It's part of the reason why following God and loving the Father is so difficult is because to love these things and to love for the Father, as John says, are incompatible. It's how it works. Now, I just want to make some clarifying statements, and I also just want to give you, because I know I've kind of been beating you over the head for a little bit, I just want to give you a moment to celebrate something. Take an opportunity to think of these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Which is one that's not as much of a struggle for you? Actually celebrate that. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to talk about the one you struggle with. But just acknowledge one of these things, the instant pursuit of pleasure, the desire for more, your sense of self-sufficiency. One of these things is likely not as much of a struggle for you. It's okay to celebrate that. It's good to celebrate that. What is that for you? And then allow yourself to think, what's one of these areas that's a struggle for me? For me, it's the pride of life. I just had a realization a week ago that I struggle to see God as my protector. For the number of times that there's images in Scripture of God as my refuge, as my stronghold, I've realized that what I like to do is just become self-reliant to the point of building my own safe place, and then after I'm secure, I'll ask God, okay, what do you want to do now? This is an area of struggle for me. But it's also in realizing that, intended to be an area of life. This is not intended to be an area where John wants to just like toss shame upon those who are seeking to follow Jesus. It's far, far different. He's just acknowledging the reality of our day and wanting to call us into something greater. Read with me in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world and its desires pass away. It's what they do. Their end goal, their natural push is to disappear. We already experience this in each of the three categories. Start with the lust of the flesh and our pursuit of pleasure. Yes, we are an entertainment-based culture. We try and like remove boredom and seek happiness and pleasure as much as possible. Yet there was a national bestseller written by a guy named Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. This guy has no Christian background. And without reading the book, you are probably well aware of what it's about. Of the fact that our constant pursuit of entertainment is preventing our ability to seek character formation, to seek wisdom, and in our instances today, to seek God. Hear this. That book was written almost 40 years ago. He was writing about television. He had no concept of a smartphone. How much more true is it today? The lust of the eyes. We know how damaging the game of comparison is, and yet we all play it every single day. Whatever you want, whether you are comparing yourself to the people who have more money than you, whether you compare yourself to the influencers who get to travel the world, do their cute little poses, and like have the life that they want, that you want to live. We live this life of comparison. I practice that in the mirror. <laughs> Maybe there's an influencer life ahead of me. 
And yet we know how damaging it is and how we just feed ourselves into a world of insecurity as long as we do that. In the pride of life, basing yourself and your identity based on what you have and who you are, how could it be that we live in a world where it is the assumption that you will go through a midlife crisis? That you will at some point begin to doubt, is this actually worth it? Is this the point? Or even further, where we assume that the best part of our life is in our 20s and 30s and it's all downhill from there. How we forget the world and the wisdom of seniors and also, like, it's hard for us to even imagine that the best in life is actually at the return of Jesus. It's not based on our experiences right now. For whatever type of suffering and disappointment and discouragement we experience right now, the best is always yet to come. And yet, how hard is it for us to grasp that? See, these things are already passing away. But I also just want to acknowledge this. I am not standing up here to say, stop having fun. Don't pursue pleasure. It's bad. It's not what John's saying either. He says in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. Clearly not desire itself. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's a certain type of desire that is very good in all of these areas, and the kind of like pleasure type of desire, in the eyes type of desire, and even the pride of life. There's a good form of this desire that we're going to talk about, but there's this foundational reality that we need to sit with, and it's this. Renouncing the world means reforming our desire. Renouncing the world means reforming our desire. Somehow changing the way, our longings. But that's confusing because it also doesn't work. I hate anchovies. I'm not about to like anchovies. I can't just snap say, you're right. I I just need to start liking anchovies. It just doesn't work that way. So how do you reform your desire? How do you start to actually like the things of God more than the things of this world? John has actually only given us in these three verses one commandment, what scholars call one imperative, and the rest is exposition on that. He starts out in verse 15 with the only command, the only thing, the key key to accomplishing this. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. That's John's only command in these three verses. Everything else is just explanation. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Great. If I was to stand up here and tell you, don't think about purple elephants, what are you going to do? You're going to think about purple elephants. It doesn't always feel like a very helpful command, right? How do we turn it into a helpful command? I think of a story with my brother Kyle. He's my older brother. He was about four years old at this point. My mom was making cookies, and as she was doing this, she just said to Kyle, hey, do what you want, just don't touch this new plant that I got. She starts making cookies, and she just hears this four-year-old voice coming from the living room. No touchy. <laughs> no touchy. So with a little smirk, she like peers around the corner, and my brother had stationed himself directly in front of the plant, staring at it, like I don't even know if he was blinking. No touchy. And my mom tried to, like, explain, hey, Kyle, like, your toys aren't even in this room. Like, you don't have to be here. But he was just so fixated on this one thing. Do not love the world. Don't do this one thing. 
What we need to do is figure out how to say, okay, I need to actually put some sort of boundary to like maybe not enter the living room, not because the living room's bad, but because I actually need space just to like learn how to go and enjoy playing with toys. There's some ancient wisdom here that we can find once again in the desert fathers and the desert mothers. Listen to this quote from Abba John the Dwarf. How about that name? If a king wanted to take possession of his enemy's city, he would begin by cutting off the water and the food, and so his enemies, dying of hunger, would submit to him. It's the same with the passions of the flesh. If a man goes about fasting and hungry, the enemies of his soul grow weak. For the desert fathers and mothers, fasting was a key for them in figuring out how to refashion their desire around the things of God, to train themselves to not always answer yes just because something felt good, but to say, I want to seek something greater. As I mentioned, I'm a lactose intolerant person. I used to, though, when I would eat pizza, just like accept it and have the cheese on there. Someone once told me that you don't miss it as much as you once did. And I'm not like, I have a whole pitch on cheese on pizza, and I'm not going to bother you with that today. But if you're curious, I, I genuinely believe that pizza could be better without cheese. But I didn't believe that at first. At first, I just did it because it made me feel better. Now I genuinely just enjoy pizza without cheese. I know it's weird. That's probably even crazier than a guy stripping himself naked in church. (laughs) But over time, my desire was actually changed. This is what fasting does. In fact, it's what Jesus himself did when he came up against the desires of this world. Did you notice that? We think of Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and then the temptations coming is just thinking, I can't believe he did that under the weakness of those 40 days of fasting. The reverse could also be true. The only way Jesus could have actually like positioned himself to resist these temptations was under the strength that God provides in fasting. Here's what fasting does. Fasting helps us turn our desire towards God. It's what it does. It helps turn our desire towards God. And I want to show you how in each of these three areas we've been talking about this happens. And I want to start with the lust of the eyes. We are an attention-driven culture. We lack contentment. We are distracted. What can we do to break this? Try a digital fast. Try a set amount of time on a weekly basis where you do not look at your phone. Am I Sarah... Spent 60 years not looking at a river. Do you think you could try one day not looking at your phone? Just one day. And then over the course of doing that, maybe once a week, learning about the fact that you just get to be present with what you have and you are not able to start dreaming about what you could have. You just have to be present where you are. What about the lust of the flesh? Well, here I want to talk more specifically about fasting, about how it's traditionally been talked about, which is specifically fasting from food. Fasting from food in this instance is a set amount of time where you do not eat. Don't, like, go crazy here. You can do, like, 24 hours or something like that. You do not eat, not because eating is bad. Also, not because you do this so that God loves you. Neither of those things are true. 
If you want to step into this, it's simply because you're saying, I want to love God more. I've learned that I can't love the Father and love the world at the same time, so I'm going to try and do something that just helps me grow in my love for God. That's the only reason you do this. If you are doing this because you feel like someone's wagging a finger at you, do not do it. It will kill your soul. But if you're in a place where you just want to say, I want to grow in my love for God, and right now my sense of instant gratification is preventing me from doing that, fasting fights that off. It teaches us to say, I do not need to be driven by instant pleasure all the time. And over time, as you do that, you start to become a person who is able to say no to those instant gratifications and to say, I just want to seek you, God, more than anything. Your pleasure starts to be driven by the things of God. To be in community with others, to love others. It also happens when it comes to the pride of life. Fasting puts us in a place of weakness. We cannot rely on our own strength. But to regularly fast and say, I'm actually coming into this place needing your power, God, that is a place of strength. It is humbling for me to acknowledge when I fast how quickly I turn from a person who I like, I think I'm relatively like even keel, but like how quickly I just become a grumpy old man as soon as I start fasting that like the moment I've missed a meal, I'm just upset at everyone and irritable all the time. Very humbling. And yet also reminds me to come to a power that is greater than my own that I don't want to just be stuck with whatever power I have within me. I want to access a power that is greater than me. And I want that power at all times. I just want to end here. I mentioned to you that there's something good within each of these inclinations for pleasure, for seeing things, and even the pride of life. The pleasure side of things is we just want our pleasures to be God-driven. The seeing kind of things is we want to have the eyes of God. We want to see what God sees and reach out and recognize that there are things in this world that should be different. It's just not often based around what we get. It's around patterns of injustice. It's around oppression. It's around greed. It's around those types of things. But the thing that is crazy to me, is, and I just want to land here, is to talk about this pride of life as, there, as the fact that there is a type of pride that is actually healthy. But it just doesn't come from us. Jesus was given this temptation in the wilderness with the enemy of saying, cast yourself down, show the world these angels that are going to minister to you. Let them see this is who you are. And Jesus says, no. And then a couple verses later in verse 11, we're told, oh yeah, and the angels came and ministered to Jesus. Jesus said no to the temptation of the world, but it actually was true about him that the angels would come and minister to him, and they did. The reason I land here is because, once again, our desire is not to say all desire, all pleasure, all these types of things are bad. They just need to be God-centered. We are in a world that loves to define ourselves based on who we are and what we have. On the one hand, we have massively inflated egos. On the other hand, we still view ourselves far too humbly. Do you realize that you were created in the image of God? Creation itself, if it wants to look at God, looks at you. Do you realize that if you follow Jesus, you are called a conqueror and a co-heir with Christ? In other words, if you follow Jesus, you have a share in the throne on which Jesus sits. Do you realize this is who you are? 
And it's not based on what you've done. It's all based on what was given to you by God. This is what it means to renounce the world, not to hate ourselves, not to hate our world, but to say, in this gold pan, I want to get rid of all the mud, and I just want to be left with the gold. I want to seek you and you alone, God. That is my desire, and to that end we pray. Father, we love you, and in that, Lord, we declare that we do not love the world. We're anything in it. We renounce it. We renounce the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and seek you and you alone, Jesus. Help us to do that day by day by day. In your name, amen. As we close in worship, we invite our prayer teams to the forward and just a couple specific invitations. Really just one. Um, you can come for prayer for whatever reason, but on a specific invitation level, if you find yourself saying, I want to be, I want to take one of those steps that helps me change, helps my heart to be changed, helps me to seek the Father, not the world, a great way to do that would, come, would be to come and receive prayer and to say, I renounce the world. I just want to love the Father more. If that's you, come and receive prayer today.